another episode on our Malava Malka series, and there's nothing more appropriate for a Malava Malka than to once again speak about Rav Shleim Kalbach. When people sit around Malava Malka, they sing, they dance, they kumzitz, and of course this is the most appropriate atmosphere. Of course the best thing to do would be to tell over some of Rav Shleim's stories, but instead I'm going to continue the story about Reb Shleima and, and uh, his early years, specifically this is Yehudi Geberer, with Jewish History Soundbites and, uh, for another episode. And it's a continuation, a little bit more, about, about his early years, um, about his Lakewood years, and about the transition from Lakewood um, to the beginning of his music career. And it's interesting, when I grew up, a little boy, and the, the idea that 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 Kalbach was a problematic person, or that he was supposed to be considered controversial, had not penetrated uh, um, in the house where I grew up. My father remembered passing by the House of Love and Prayer in San Francisco. Um, he related that. Um, my mother uh, related participating in a few weddings that. Rav Shleim Kalbach officiated at as the Masada Kedushin, and she described them as the you know the the most amazing weddings she had ever attended. Especially, how often do you have a Masada Kedushin who plays guitar under the chuppah? It's you know it's got to be a wild chuppah. So I didn't, I wasn't aware. And then when I grew up a little bit, and I was at a, actually at a a quite a um, yeshivish shul, and it was some sort of fabring and some sort of get together on Pesach, and the rabbi was sitting there, and he was mechabed some of the people sitting around the table to start a song in honor of Pesach, in honor of this get together, fabring and whatever it was. And some guy who must have been a guest or something, he says, and this is the mid '90s, so it's shortly after Karl Bach had passed away in 1994. Um, so this is, this is a couple of years after, I don't know, a year or two, three later. And this guy says, well, Reb Shloyma's family and mine were very close back in the old country. So I want to sing a song, Le'ilu Nishmasai. And he starts to sing Adirhu, Pesach. And all of a sudden I see the rabbi at the head of the table basically go wide, rolling his eyes, getting all tense and nervous. 
and people start whispering. And I, I was surprised. I didn't know about this. I went over to, I asked the guy near me, what's going on? What's the big deal? What's, 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 uh, what's, uh, am I missing something? And he said, don't you know, the rabbi learned in Lakewood by Reb Schneer Cutler. I said, okay, and therefore what? And he said, oh, in Lakewood, this is a problem. And uh, thus I was introduced to the idea that there's this uh, controversy and conflict surrounding him because of the early years that he had spent in Lakewood um, with so much promise and so much closeness to Rabbi and Cutler, and therefore it later uh, became an issue. So that was my introduction. And since then, I've been closely following this story. It's a fascinating story. Someone who is so entrenched in the Lakewood or Aaron world and led uh, such a, um, in a way, a different life, in a way, um, what he saw as also doing for Claudius Yisrael in his own way. Um, and uh, this in this episode, actually, the past episode where I started off last time, I I did not anticipate the volume of feedback I would get from listeners. And thank God I always get good feedback and there's an amazing quality of listeners, quantity and quality of listeners to Jewish History Soundbites. Um, and there's always good feedback. Uh, but this time it was, it was beyond anything uh, I imagined. There was an enormous amount of wealth um, that was transmitted to me by listeners. And the great thing about uh, feedback from people who are followers and people who have been influenced by Reb Shleim Karlbach is that if it's a regular episode that people are giving feedback, you know, sometimes they're pretty critical and sometimes say, hey, you didn't say this and this was a mistake. But when you're talking about people who have been influenced by someone who is just so full of love, then even their critique is, oh, you could have added this story and this uh, detail and they're always so nice about it. So it's amazing to have these listeners also um, giving feedback um, on, on, on the early years of Shleimah Karlbach. So most of this episode is, is, and this is the first time I'm doing this, is all from the listeners. The, all you guys out there who, who uh, enriched me in the past couple of days um, about the, the early years, especially several people, eight or nine people at least, sent me this incredible recording of Reb Shleimah himself talking about his year. He had visited Lakewood, and he was just talking about his own years in Lakewood by Rav Aaron Cutler. And I heard this recording quite a bit of time ago, and I definitely didn't have it in front of me, and, uh, and probably had forgotten it, because I heard it quite a while ago. And here I got this uh, reminder, and it's really a moving uh, moving the stories he says over, he relates how he was six years in Lakewood, he learned by Rabarin, and he rattles off all the Masechtas that they learned in Lakewood at the time, Mashem and Ezekin, and Shabbos, and Zeroim, and all kinds of other stuff. But he then he says something quite startling, that he never spoke to Rabarin in learning because he was he was simply too scared. He said, this is the Sar HaToyrah, Rabarin Cutler. And uh, the Rosh Hashiva knew everything. He was such a going, what did I know in front of him? How could I, anytime I thought of speaking to him and learning, I would start shaking. I turned white as a sheet. I would shiver. It's impossible to go speak to Reb Aaron and learning. And uh, even though he, Karbach said, Chabur is in the Yeshiva, 
but he was unable to go ahead and take those chaburs and discuss them with Ravaran Cutler, even by his faher. Uh, he was he had been uh, he, he had been uh, learning and studying at the Tyre Vedas Yeshiva by Rav Shlaima Hyman, who he was also close with, and Rav Aaron asked. Um, Kalbach's father, Rabbi Naftali Kalbach, who was a Rav on the west side, if he can send him his son to be one of the founding Talmidim of the Lakewood Yeshiva, and which was a big honor. He was chosen by Rabban to be, to, be, uh, to be there, and he left Taravidas and he went to learn by Rabban. And even by his entrance exam, he was unable to really uh, get it out and speak to Rabban and learning. It was too difficult for him. He was, he was shaking. And it was it was uh, it was quite an experience. And by the way, he remained a a Talmud of both uh, Reb Shleim Haim and Reb Aaron. And and another listener related how how um, how uh, someone had heard from um, from from Reb Shleim Kalbach about the difference in the Derech Halimud of Reb Aaron Cutler and Reb Shleim Haimin. that uh, Reb Aaron was all uh, lumbus depth. Gainus, a sheer genius of his, of his incisive analytical talent in taking apart a suga and learning, and Reb Shlaim Hyman was all pashtus, and he would he said how specifically on one suga, Reb Aaron Cutler said in a sheer that blew blew everyone's mind out. How it was sheer genius. It was it was uh, it was a sheer that was sheer genius, and uh, and he. And how he tied everything together, he asked a whole slew of questions, and he built the whole yesoid, a foundation, a fundamental principle that answered everything. And um, and in the same sugya of Shleim Hyman, he learned the Gemara with him, and they read the Rashi and they read the Taisus, and the way of Shleim Hyman explained it with such simplicity and such clarity, there were no questions to start with. And that really brought out the difference between the two, both of them great giants and tire that he learned by. So my my comment on this story was that this that we thought we only got songs from Shlaima Kaubach and Torah and stories and a way of Kirov Rechaikim during tumultuous times like the sixties and seventies, and many other things that we got from him. But we didn't know that we also got Derek Halimut from him, that he was that he explained the difference in the Derek Haliman of Reb Aaron Cutler and Reb Shleim Haiman that we also got from him. So we got much more than we originally thought we did. He also said a story how the how Reb Aaron Cutler um, gave him his nefesh achayim. He said it was a well worn nefesh achayim, and he told him to learn Reb Kivayeger, learn Ktsay Sachayshen, and listen to my shir, and then you'll be all right. And the another story that happened when he was in Lakewood, a very powerful story. Said Reb Aaron's greatest joy in life was to see people learning and watching them study with hasmada, with a diligence, with a geshmak. And uh, it was Shavuos in Yeshiva in the Lakewood Yeshiva in the early years. And the first night of Shavuos, everyone stayed up all night. The next day, they didn't get to sleep much because Reb Aaron Cutler gave a shear in the afternoon. They stayed up the second night, Shavuos, again learning, and they didn't get much sleep the next day because Rabbi Aaron gave another shir on the second afternoon. 
And then it was already the third night. Now, who's going to stay up learning the third night? Aaron occasionally, when he was around in Lakewood, he didn't spend that much time in Lakewood. He spent most of his week in Borough Park. But whenever he was in Lakewood, and Shabbos, Yontif, occasionally during the week, he would come during the night just to see, pop his head into the base Medrash to see who was learning in the base Medrash at 1, 2 in the morning. So he said it was the third night. Everyone was exhausted and zonked. It was Maitzi Shvuas. And it was already... After three in the morning, it was close to four in the morning, and there were three people in the base medrash still. Three nights in a row learning. There was Ramesha Eisman, there was Shlaima Karlbach himself, and Rabbi Yankel Weisberg. And Rabbiron pops his head into the base medrash and sees who's going to be learning Tyra three nights in a row after whole Shvuas. Who's the ones who it's close to four in the morning, they're still learning. And he saw those three. And he was so excited, he was so happy. This time he didn't just pop his head in, he came inside, he started speaking to them and learning. They were learning the second parak above a comma, Ketzat HaRegel, and he started handling with them, and he said the simcha on Rav Aaron's face, the joy, the excitement that he had to see some of his close Talmidim still learning at such a time, he said it was worth staying up all three nights just to be able to see the simcha of Rabaran Cutler at that time. And then he goes on to describe the ga'inus of Rabaran. He said he, wasn't, he was a ga'in unlike anyone else, unlike even the previous generations. He said some people are geniuses in depth, in amkus. Some are in lumdus, in harifus, in sharpness. Some are in, in, in the, simply the amount of knowledge they have. They're bakiyas, the the breadth of their knowledge. He said, Rabbi Aaron was everything. He was a guy in simply everything. Anytime he opened his mouth, and one of the times that he gave a shear, it was a shear in the first parak in Ksubis, when he was in Lakewood, and he explained the whole Ramban, Machlekes Ramban, and the Bal Hamor, and two of the great Rishayim in the back of the Gemara, the Ramban and Milchamas, and he brought a whole Shitasa, he connected it to another Ramban, and Bal Hamar in Yevamis, and it was it was just it, it was it was amazing. He said it, he said it, he couldn't control himself. He goes over to Rabar and Cutler after the shear, and he said, Rosh Hashiva, this was Ga'ine Ga'inus, Ga'ine Ga'inus, and he said I couldn't stop myself. I just said it again and again, Ga'ine Ga'inus. He said Rabar and Cutler wasn't that impressed with his uh, effusive praises of his shear, he puts his hand on his shoulder and he says, oh, du zokst du zokst that's what you're saying? Really? That's what you're saying? And they, and um, he, he said another story about Yom Kippur in Lakewood, about how the davening Yom Kippur in Lakewood was from, was the, the purity, the excitement of the davening, the, the davening brought them to, to other places, the power of the davening, and when they finish the whole day, you're on such a spiritual high, such a spiritual plane. And the, he said, Rabaran would go straight from his his uh, his davening, and he would go to learn for several hours. Maybe had a little drink of something, water, coffee, but he wouldn't sit down to eat. wasn't weak after the whole long fast and the davening and the long hours of standing. He would learn for several hours. He would take all that energy that he had and the high that he had the spiritual high that he had from his Yom Kippur and go to learn. And he said, us in the yeshiva, we felt the same way. We felt that we didn't want to eat, we didn't want to drink. We, we felt like 
we were in a different world and all we wanted to do was learn Tyra for the rest of our lives. That's what we walked out of Yom Kippur. He said, then you went back to New York for Sukkot and you got a different feeling. But uh, once, while you were there, you were on this side, they were inspired by the, the personality of Rabaran and by the whole atmosphere of Lakewood at that time to just you know, channel all their energies in a spiritual way. And it's very powerful. What I thought would touch me the most of this recording was the way he ended off. He's speaking to people in Lakewood on one of his visits, and he says, I envy you. I envy you that you're still here and you're still able to be here. And then you hear the people in the crowd. It's one of these live recordings with a poor quality. It's, it's a real, real good old-fashioned recording. And, um, and uh, they say, come back. So come back. If you envy us, then come back. And there you go. There you have it. That's the whole... That's the whole, that encapsulizes in a certain way, encapsulates in a certain way, the whole story of Shlomo Kaubach, the nostalgia that he himself has for his early years in Lakewood, and his, his connection and the feeling that he never really left, and the fact that he comes and visits, and the people, and it's still early on, obviously, I don't know how much he visited in the 1980s and 90s, but uh, there's obviously still much in the earlier years, and... Um, and he and 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 the fact that they that he envies them and they want him to come back and that's that's part of the the challenge it's part of the problem you know his sister was married to like I mentioned last time to Reb Simchas the son of Rabbi Ruch the Levavitzes are a big Beisat Talmud family then in East New York later on in Benzenhurst very very intense place yeshivish place Altamiras who were there. And uh, and Reb Simchas son learned there, and when he got engaged, the, the assumption was that his uncle would come and sing and perform at his wedding. And the base of Talmud guys got very nervous that the, the this uh, this is not going to be good. Shlomo Kalbach he's controversial. We can't allow someone like that uh, to come at a wedding. We're going to boycott the wedding. The boycott the wedding. Yeah, what happens in the end? They're not boycotting the wedding. First of all, it's their friend, and second of all, because Shlomo Kalbach is going to be there, so they all come to the wedding, every one of them. And Uncle Shlomo came to the wedding, and he performed, and he sang, and it was the most incredible wedding that these basic Talmud guys had ever been at. And uh, and the listener who submitted this story told me that he spoke to some several people who had been at this wedding, and it was absolutely the most beautiful and nice experience they ever had at a chasana. Uh, he, he had the crowd, he held the crowd. Uh, interestingly enough, um, he, another story from his early years of performing, one of the first times he came, Karbach came to Yisrael, I heard this also from, uh, from a listener, um, he, he, he gave a performance, and it went late at night, and it was a pretty rowdy crowd, and someone called the police, it was disturbing the peace, and in, in, in Yerushalayim in those days, they weren't used to such noises late at night. I think today they're more used to it. And uh, the police came. They said, it's after 11 o'clock. You're not allowed to make noise. And that's what the police said at 11 o'clock. At 11.05, the cops were on the stage dancing and singing with Shlomo Karlbach. So that's also uh, not only based on Talmud guys, but Israeli police get pulled in. Everyone was pulled in by his charisma. And that's also a bit of a... A, a powerful lesson for life. There are the people who come at 11 o'clock and they try to change things, they try to change the world, and then there's the people at 11.05 who have gotten used to the situation, who accept the situation, and they're up there dancing and singing with everyone else. But that's for another time, and definitely 
for other people to give that type of shmuz. So it's interesting that um, that in those early years, he also gets smicha from Rabbi Yitzchak Kutner. After he had left Lakewood, he had spent a little bit of a time in, in Chaim Berlin, um, when he was already associated more with Chabad, which he eventually left also. It's actually the Lubavitcher Rebbe who encouraged him to get smichas. It would give him more of an authority, give him more of a presence, which he encouraged Shlichim to do all the time, to get smicha, to become officially a rabbi. That would widen their scope of influence. And this is when he starts to go out to colleges and influence people. Um, it's, at this, uh, it's at this time. Interestingly enough, there's another, another connection to the, to, the, to, the, to the world that he never left, is that after he had already spent the entire 1950s already starting to spread, and also it's important to understand that it was in the 1950s that he, that he begins to become big. It's, it's not the wild 60s and the hippie movement and the, uh, that whole scene, which, uh, I would, which I would hopefully talk about in at a future episode of about Rosh Hashanah about the the 1960s and on, which is already not his early years. It's already the the peak of his career, the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, but before that, he's he's already a presence in the 1950s, and we associate with him in the public memory as being a product of the counterculture movement, the San Francisco hippie community, the that whole. Um, that whole generation, but really he starts in the 50s, which is a different milieu, it's a different atmosphere, it's a different uh, situation, and that's when he really starts, and maybe he gets his big break in the late 60s, but he's around for a long time before that, and after, and after all that, he's around on the scene for so long, in 1967 his father passes away, and he's appointed to replace his father as the rabbi, he's still seen as a mainstream regular rabbi to a certain extent. He's obviously not mainstream at this point in 1967, but he's still appointed to become the rabbi along with his twin brother. And therefore, this, uh, this struggle of where is his position and where does he stand is something that continues and will continue to be um, um, a, a part of his story and part of his personality and part of his identity. This was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, um, you can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com. And of course, you can follow Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Subscribe, uh, share with family and friends, follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoy.